The Way Out Podcast, episode 231. I'm Gigi Langer. I did uh, grow up the youngest of four children in a family where my father was out at the bar a lot. And um, and when both parents drank, there was fighting and so on. Fortunately, my mother didn't drink very often, but she totally changed personality. So it was a scary place. And then to top it all, I'm a highly sensitive person. Mm. One place I found a little sanity was to get good grades mm. in school. And uh, then I discovered boys. <laughs> and that was my, really kind of my drug of choice for a long time. And that marriage didn't work out for very good reasons. And um, I started smoking marijuana. And that was what really dulled the pain because I was a person who got horrible, horrible hangovers. And boy, did that take the emotional pain away. Mm. So then I had, you know, another husband way older than I was. The third husband was straight as an arrow, not a real older than I was, but we had a very short courtship. So I moved to Michigan and within nine months, I'm going out to bars. I have no marijuana, right? Cause I'm in a new state going out to bars, picking up men, and getting marijuana from them and sleeping with them. And my husband was traveling a lot. That was uh, a danger signal for me. And I went to a psychologist and I said, you know, what is wrong with this picture? You know, I have this degree and I've got a good profession going on, but I'm sleeping around and lying about it and so on. So that psychologist said, well, you're in the early stages of alcoholism. And I thought, man, that can't be so bad. Early stages, you know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> That's a relief. Yeah. And he told me about the disease of alcoholism and so on. And it was like, yeah, bingo, bingo. But I wasn't ready to give it up. So he said, try having two drinks, no more, no less, and see what happens. And it took me six months to discover that if I had two drinks, sometimes I would stop but sometimes I would have the third and the fourth and find the marijuana and the man and go home with a stranger mm -hmm. and drive home mm -hmm. and really endanger myself and others. Mm. You know, one day he said, what if this was your last drink? And I said, I guess it could be. I started going to meetings, maybe two or three a week. I had stopped drinking, but I hadn't gotten a sponsor yet. The main thing was the 12 steps. Yeah. So. After six months, I got a sponsor and started working through those. And that was really a, a transformative experience. I got sober and I got a sponsor and I worked the steps. I realized I went all through the steps and I was in therapy. And I realized that I had a thinking problem. Hmm. I had anxiety. So every time I had a painful situation, I would go looking for tools that would help me get my head screwed on straight. I would keep going to my meetings, you know, keep doing service, keep reading spiritual literature, acquired a lot of spiritual tools through my challenges. But I also discovered energy tools and also the cognitive reframing tools. And those, it's now, it's so great because when I have a, anxious thought or a worry thought or a, oh my god i can just notice it now sometimes it takes me a day you know mm -hmm. i mean i'm not mm -hmm. you know i'm human but when i notice it i have a variety of ways to help myself through it 
and that's why I put them all in the book. And I was so relieved to learn about the highly sensitive person research. Eileen Aaron, and I refer to her in my book, she says one out of five people is, and she studied multiple and looked at the research multiple um, civilizations and cultures. And those five people, or one in five, often become the sages and the advisors and the wise ones in their cultures, which I really needed to hear because I thought there must be some upside <laughs> to, this, <laughs> to this sensitivity, you know, right. you know, it was just such a relief to me to realize I'm not nuts. I'm just sensitive. Yeah. And I'm and and I have anxiety. Yeah. And and um, and many, many of us alcoholics are overly sensitive. Yes. And have anxiety and or depression. And it does take work, but it also takes just knowing that my worth is established by a higher power, mm. my, that the essence of me is goodness. And all those whispered lies I believed about who I was and who other people were, that was just fear and illusion. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and allrecoveryrings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's allrecoveryrings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this installment of The Way Out, we have an ultra-informative and super-instructive interview with person in long-term recovery and author of the new, and folks, I don't say this often, absolute must-read book, 50 Ways to Worry Less Now, Gigi Langer. Gigi shares with us her journey to and through recovery and what she's learned up to this point in 35 years of sobriety, including many of the recovery, spiritual, energy, and cognitive tools 
that can put an end to the pernicious worry, anxiety, and ultimately fear that dogs so many of us prior to, and even in, sobriety. Without question, one of the overriding and compelling elements arising out of Gigi's story is the series of reckonings and recoveries that occur throughout her recovery journey, starting with addiction and alcoholism, all the way through codependency and being an adult child of an alcoholic. Equally as fascinating is the phenomenon and experience of being a highly sensitive person, first identified by Dr. Elaine Aaron and how profoundly important it was for her to understand and accept this about herself and then undergo a process of learning, acquiring, and applying an assortment of tools to bring about a transformative recovery rooted in the 12 steps and a higher power. There's so much spiritual truth and recovery tools in this here interview, so you just might have to play this one twice. But whatever you do, do make sure you listen up. Gigi Langer, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule in the middle of a move <laughs> to a new place, no less, to visit with us here on the Way Out podcast. I am super excited to dig into the book that you wrote, 50 Ways to Worry Less Now. And I like the now part, especially as a recovering addict and alcoholic. Now suits me, Gigi. So before we do that, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience? Tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you have been in recovery, and we'll get started. Great. Well, I'm Gigi Langer, and um, I'm really happy to be here, Charles. That's it's a great opportunity. And I did just move, and I, we're living now here in Southwest Florida, and so I am surrounded by boxes. But fortunately, I found my microphone and the headphones. And uh, but we moved from Michigan. I've most of much of my life I've been in the Midwest, the Chicago area. Michigan, but I did have several years where I traveled around quite a bit. And I am, let's see, I just had my 35th year anniversary of recovery <laughs> from all substances and bad habits, too. <laughs> Hot damn. Yeah. That yeah. is a lot of one day at a time. Yes, it is. By the grace of my higher power. That is absolutely tremendous. And I know that is absolutely earned one day at a time. Quite obviously, you're also an author. But before we get to talking about the book, tell us a little bit about what it was like for you growing up. And then we can, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, how substances and behaviors became a part of your life and why? Yeah. Well, I did uh, grow up the youngest of four children in a family where my father was out at the bar a lot. And um, and when both parents drank, there was fighting and so on. Fortunately, my mother didn't drink very often, but she 
totally change personality. So it was a scary place. And then to top it all, I'm a highly sensitive person. Mm -hmm. And there's wonderful uh, research about that roughly one in five people is highly sensitive. And that means we're you know, if you're a little sensitive to bright lights and loud voice, you know, loud noises and easily startled and you feel a lot, some people are calling it empath. But anyway, it it makes growing up a little difficult because everybody else thinks just my sister thinks just rolled off their back, you know, yeah. nothing bothered them. And yeah. I seemed like I was bothered by a lot, but of course I hid it, became the good little girl. So one place I found a little sanity was to get good grades mm. in school. And uh, then I discovered boys. <laughs> and that was my really kind of my drug of choice for a long time. I, you know, my mother worshiped my father's and we were brought up with all these romantic novels and, um, you know, all the romance of the songs and the movies. And so, you know, I was going to find the white, you know, the knight in shining armor. And, uh, of course, that didn't work out too well. <laughs> I was kind of straight in high school and um, even in college, although there were a few episodes where I drank and then drank and drank and did crazy things like, you know, going to a hotel with my fraternity, uh, the fraternity brother of my boyfriend, you know, things that I thought, wow. But after I got married for the first time and I was teaching uh, you know, that was the knight in shining armor, right? He mm -hmm. was perfect. All my dreams were going to come true. Mm -hmm. And um, and that marriage didn't work out. Uh, I be, it, it's a long story. Mm -hmm. and <laughs> but um, and, and because this is going public, there are some things I'd like to keep his own confidence for, you know. But anyway, after a few years, that, you know, ended for very good reasons. And um, I started smoking marijuana, and that was what really dulled the pain because I was a person who got horrible, horrible hangovers. And boy, did that take the emotional pain away. Mm. So then I had, you know, another husband way older than I was, but we didn't get married right away. But when we did get married, it was a contract marriage because he worked for IBM and we could do all these fancy international travel and it would have been better. So that was, you know, the 70s, right? <laughs> and uh, and that one didn't work out. Well, you know, after four years, we ended it. But I got, you know, I got a chance to have all these adventures. And I couldn't figure out why I wasn't happy. Then I uh, left him, went to grad school. Boy, what am I doing here with all these smart people in a doctoral program? Yikes. Better get high every night. So I did that for four years. I did finish the program by the grace of God. Um, had a you know a couple of guys I lived with, but I didn't marry them. And then the third husband was straight as an arrow, not a real older than I was, but we had a very short courtship. So I moved to Michigan, and within nine months, I'm going out to bars. I have no marijuana, right? Because I'm in a new state, going out to bars, picking up men, and getting marijuana from them and sleeping with them. And my husband was traveling a lot. That was uh a danger signal for me. Mm -hmm. And I went to a psychologist and I said, you know, what is wrong with this picture? You know, I have this degree and I've got a good profession going on, but I'm sleeping around and lying about it and so on. So that 
psychologist said, well, you're in the early stages of alcoholism. And I thought, man, that can't be so bad. Early stages, you know. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's a relief. Yeah. And he told me about the disease of alcoholism and so on. And it was like, yeah, bingo, bingo. But I wasn't ready to give it up. So he said, try having two drinks, no more, no less and see what happens. And it took me six months to discover that if I had two drinks, sometimes I would stop, but sometimes I would have the third and the fourth and find the marijuana and the man and go home with a stranger mm -hmm. and drive home mm -hmm. and really endanger myself and others. Mm. So that was when I decided that, um, well, I don't know, my, my husband at the time was knew about recovery because his father was a recovering alcoholic and he had been going to Al-Anon and mm. we'd been in we'd been in couples therapy. And so, you know, one day he said, what if this was your last drink? And I said, I guess it could be. And then the next day we went to one of those where they had Al-Anon in one room and AA in another. Right. In the same building. Right. And I, this is 1986, mind you. So it's full of men, older men, full of smoke. And still I completely related to what they were saying. I felt comfortable. They were really nice to me. They didn't ask, you know, they weren't going to manipulate me. They didn't ask for my phone number to chase me. <laughs> uh, and so I, I started going to meetings, maybe two or three a week, but it took six months before I was, I had stopped drinking, but I hadn't gotten a sponsor yet. Mm. And in 86, the main thing was the 12 steps. Right. So, after six months, I got a sponsor and started working through those. And that was really a, a transformative experience, working the steps and getting uh, a healthy group of friends. So I got sober and I got a sponsor and I worked the steps. And then after the first few times, um, we, I realized I went all through the steps and I was in therapy and I realized that I had a thinking problem. Hmm. I had anxiety and I had tried going on a medicine for it, but it made me so sleepy. And um, so, and I had tried every, you know, lots of spiritual tools. And, and what happened was I started getting physical ailments. Hmm. So I hurt my back and I started seeking out people who dealt with chronic pain. Mm. And I discovered Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist female nun. Uh, I think she's Canadian or American. She might be American and lives in Canada, but anyway, mm. she's awesome. And I tell that story in the book about that pain, chronic pain. I had frozen shoulders for two years. So every time I had a painful situation, I would go looking for tools that would help me get my head screwed on straight. I would keep going to my meetings, you know, keep doing service, keep reading spiritual literature, acquired a lot of spiritual tools through my challenges. But I also discovered energy tools and also the cognitive reframing tools. And those, it's now, it's so great because when I have an anxious thought or a worry thought or, a, oh my God, I can just notice it. Now, sometimes it takes me a day, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, I'm human, 
But when I notice it, I have a variety of ways to help myself through it. And that's why I put them all in the book. (laughs) And I love the experience that you brought up around being a sensitive person, because I think that is a very common experience for those of us who are in recovery or contemplating recovery from addiction or alcoholism, that we can relate to that experience of being incredibly sensitive to the world and the people in it. Exactly. In the events and circumstances that we find ourselves in and not having this innate ability oftentimes to be resilient to these circumstances, these events and these interactions that can leave us feeling hurt, leave us feeling wounded and leave us feeling like victims. And then you talk through this experience, this transformative experience that you had on the tail end of your third marriage heading for divorce, which I can intimately relate with. And anybody that's listened to this podcast for a hot minute or two is well aware that I also have three divorces in my history. And knowing that Three's a pattern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, Gigi? It's a pattern. Right, right. On the third divorce, it gets harder and harder to say they're the problem. That's right. <laughs> right? Yeah. There's well, probably I- something going on with me. That's right. <laughs> the good news is that, you know, because relationships are so important to us, I mean, romantic relationships. But also, you know, same-sex or non-romantic relationships are so important. Um, You know, through recovery, whichever program we choose, we do find a way of becoming honest, of of not just relying on our own fears to guide us, of making really healthy choices and working our asses off with tools that help us become resilient, become sane, become helpful rather than hurtful in a situation. So it's interesting. I'll, I'll just wrap up the marriage thing Yes, <laughs> because my husband came out. Um, I stayed in that marriage uh, for a year. We went to couples therapy and so on, you know, because they said, don't make any big decisions. And, um, and I asked myself, do I really want to stay in this marriage to this man at the end of that, having a pretty full deck after a year? And, um, and the answer was no. Mm-hmm. So we did have a very amicable divorce. Um, and then within a short time, I met my husband, Peter. It took a long time getting to know him. <laughs> kept my female friends, kept my program. I had to put a governor on myself to only see him twice a week. It's <laughs> good. Because good. I was so addicted to romantic yes, love, you know? Absolutely. And uh, we just had our 31-year anniversary. That's tremendous. So that you know, it it we can get healthy and we can get happy, but if, like you said, we're highly sensitive people, and I I think I don't know anyone that's done a study of it, but I, a lot of people who become addicted 
to alcohol or drugs or romance or whatever it is, I think are highly sensitive because the world is just too much right. to handle. Right. And we've, we've got to soften the blow of the world with this like cocoon of, of drugs and alcohol and things that take us away from it. And I heard a really good open talk once. Um, the guy said, you know, if you quit drinking and, and you still can't stand the world, then why quit drinking? You know? <laughs> right. I mean, really, right. if you can't figure out a way to learn how to handle the world and all of its ups and downs, I mean, that's what we all want to be able to do, right? We don't want to live the rest of our life just acting crazy and destroying relationships and, you know, having a, a painful life. We want to figure out a way to find happiness. I think mm -hmm. everybody wants that a peace of mind and happiness and happy relationships. So for me, the 12 steps, the spiritual tools I found, the energy healing tools, and some of the cognitive therapy tools, I mean, that's how I keep myself on the beam. And there are many things that knock me off the beam. <laughs> and then I, you know, I have, and I, I just want to reiterate, this is not an me, my, and me, myself, and I kind of proposition, we can't do this alone, I don't mm. think. Mm -hmm. And and we need at least one, even if you're starting the journey of therapist, you know, at least one person, and then ideally a group of people who don't have an agenda, they don't want your money, they're not going to make you believe anything specific, but they're going to, they've succeeded against addiction and alcoholism and uh, growing up in an alcoholic home and overeating or whatever the program is for, they've figured out how to lick their problem and have a happy life. And I think we need to hang with those people and, and grow. Absolutely. And I can relate with the open talk where you heard, why would we want to be sober if life isn't any fun if it isn't worth living right yeah and i before i achieved long-term sobriety i didn't sober well without a solution yeah right? i just didn't I, I became restless irritable and discontent and sooner rather than later i would need to escape it, right? That's right. Because the world became too much and I had no tools to be able to deal with any of it. And yeah. then over any considerable amount of time when I was drinking and using, that also became unsustainable. And uh, that's then, the rock and the hard place that we get to when we are in the midst of our addiction, whatever that might be, whatever substance or behavior or individual <laughs> that might be. Right? Yeah. I can't yeah. live with it and I can't live without it. Mm -hmm. And that's a that's a hard place to be. But the good news is, as you so eloquently stated, we have the ability to be able to tap into an infinite resource of power when we connect to other people that are getting well that thought like we thought, felt like we felt, and did what we did 
end got better. And then and only then do we really, really believe that it's possible that we can get better, too. Because if you thought like I thought and you felt like I felt and you did what I did and you got better, well, dang it, maybe I can, too, if I do what you did. But I have to hang around you to learn. Right. And start applying some of those tools. And just like you, I had to work the 12 steps in order with a sponsor in order to get well. And I and and I had to do that in parallel with therapy. And that was transformational for me. Right. Yep, Me, too. You know, I was so relieved when I realized that, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm just an alcoholic. Right. And, you know, and then later when I learned, because after working the 12 steps, I said I still had a problem with negative thinking and worry and competitiveness and stress and chronic pain. And I was so relieved to learn about the highly sensitive person research, which Mm. is like hsp.org or hsp.com. I'm not sure which, but it's highly sensitive person, just the initials. But this gal, um, Eileen Aaron, and I refer to her in my book, she says one out of five people is, and she studied multiple and looked at the research multiple um, civilizations and cultures. And those five people or one in five, often become the sages and the advisors and the wise ones in their cultures, which I really needed to hear because I thought there must be some upside (laughs) to this this (laughs) sensitivity, you know. And then I could sort of say, okay, it's just, and she even has um, a chapter in there about how to parent a highly sensitive child. Mm. And, you know, it was just such a relief to me to realize I'm not nuts. I'm just sensitive. Yeah. And I'm and and I have anxiety. Yeah. And and um, and many, many of us alcoholics are overly sensitive. Yes. And have anxiety and or depression. So, Absolutely. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. We get sober. We start working through the steps and. Life still gets lifey. <laughs> and we still get into situations where we have unmanageable feelings. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the tools that we've learned so far aren't quite working for us. And we're running into some pain and we're running into some obstacles that prevent us from really being free from these unmanageable feelings and emotions. Yeah. And it sounds like that's an experience that you had, Gigi. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the, um, you know, it's when we unpack our patterns of behavior from the past, Mm. um, what I refer to is these, we discover these survival strategies that are now having the opposite effect. Yeah. They're messing us up. So trying to be a perfectionist worked in school, but then in a relationship, it really did not work at all. Right. And um, so, but we, we get all these false beliefs about ourselves, which mm. I call whispered lies. Mm. And so I had this internal dialogue. The first time I did my house cleaning steps in the 12 steps, you know, the inventory and yeah. sharing it, looking at the character flaws and so on and amends. Um, 
I realized that I just did not like myself at all. I was extremely hard on myself and mm. my internal dialogue was just, you know, and I was in therapy and he was, you know, the therapist was helping me see that. Um, but that was like the first layer that I discovered and I was able to work with that and reduce that, you know, through therapy and a bunch of, and the, the seventh step, you know, I think a, a spiritual, well, a higher power, any power that's bigger than my fear that consistently comes from a love place, we can call a higher power. Absolutely. And so, you know, that power, I think, is really uh, crucial because mm. in, you know, we've been running around trying to fill this hole inside of us because of, you know, we think we're not lovable. We think we're not worthwhile. We think this, we've grossed ourselves out with our behavior. And so we've been trying to fill this hole with the wrong things, right? Mm. You know, um, looking for love in all the wrong places. Yes. And what's so great is that when you get into a healthy recovery community, first of all, people love me just for me. Mm -hmm. So I had problems with women most of my life because I saw them as competition and right. I didn't know how to manipulate them. I was really good at manipulating men to get mm. what I wanted. So, you know, I skied with the men. I played tennis with the men. I was, you know, but when I got in recovery, then I realized I don't think it was even conscious. It's just the women liked me exactly as I was. They could see the light in me. I couldn't. And they were shining their healthy healing lights on me in, in a loving, no strings attached way. Mm. And that love is so healing. I mean, mm. it does take work, but it also takes just knowing that my worth is established by a higher power, mm. my, that the essence of me is goodness. And mm. all those whispered lies I believed about who I was and who other people were, that was just fear and illusion. This inner critic that was consistently lying to you so that you would continue to engage in these behaviors that feeds that ego and feeds the addiction, right? Yep, exactly. So I think it, uh, you know, you can do the healing and the therapy, but the bottom line comes down to, um, can I become the kind of person who's of a light of hope and help in the world you know, can I be a source of love to others? And can I receive love from others? Because receiving love was also a problem mm, for me. Mm -hmm. I thought it was manipulative or mm. I didn't trust it. Mm. And so, you know, when we get in recovery, our whole love mechanism is like broken. Right. And I think for me, the steps really helped heal that, but also spiritual practices, some of the cognitive reframing stuff and the energy work also really helped me get uh, soften those whispered lies yeah uh dissolve the power of those negative beliefs the limiting beliefs so we undergo this process of deconstructing these counterproductive thoughts attitudes and behaviors that keep us stuck 
keep us unwell, disconnected, in repeating these undesirable behaviors that leave us feeling shame and emptiness. We start deconstructing the these thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors through action, right? Primarily, yeah. we start doing something different, and that starts to rewire us to a large extent you have 50 ways to worry less now and so much of it is action that we can take right that instead of leaving us racked in shame and in emptiness and disconnection leave us feeling more positive Right. And whole. Yes. And connected. Right. Oh, connected for sure. You know, when you talked about deconstructing, I think, you know, there's that saying analysis paralysis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, how many people did I talk to in the bars that, you know, oh, I know <laughs> why I have this problem because my parents were done. Nah, 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 nah. And that's what, you know, that like analysis paralysis. People know why, but they're not doing anything different. So your emphasis on action, I think, is key. And also, um, things happen when we take action that do come from that higher power source of goodness that help us change also. So if I'm always the one trying to change my own mind, I don't know that it works too well. Yeah. Um, although I have a section in there on the whole law of attraction and affirmations um, because I, I used that when I was writing my book and I, I created a little vision board and I have a picture of it in the book. You know, whenever we're trying to do something hard or scary or we're afraid of something, I think, you know, doing the affirmations when they're not too specific. Um, you know, I write a wonderful book in a wonderful way. It offers wonderful service for wonderful pay. That was the little I love yeah. it. Yeah. And then I had a little picture thing. But here's the key to um, visualization and affirmations. Uh, we can't hold on to them too tightly or too specifically mm. because it. we have to leave some room for the magic of the higher power, whatever that creative intelligence is that helps us um, get really, you know, inspired and Absolutely. That's about allowing us to be responsible, allowing ourselves to be responsible for the effort and let go of that outcome. Right. Thank you. Thank you. I was reaching for that. <laughs> <laughs> so this whole thing about attachment, which is a Buddhist concept on attachment, you know, I, I practice some Buddhist things too. And, um, you know, that that concept is a very helpful one. It is to uh, let go and understand that attachment is, in fact, the root of all suffering. Yes. And if we can let that go to a power greater than ourselves, mm -hmm. then our suffering is reduced 
by default. And when, when I think about you know straightening out my thinking, I can do that without f- doing something in that if I'm channeling my higher power, right? And my higher power gives me the ability to help straighten out my thinking. But it is an action in my mind, even though you may not see me doing anything. I really do believe that is an act. If I am, whether that might be mindful meditation, whether whether that is a concerted effort to connect to my higher power in order to be able to channel a spiritual principle that I am trying to embody. Right, right. I think there's a lot to be said for a consistent study of, you know, what Deepak Chopra calls the, the world traditions, you know, the world's wisdom traditions. Wisdom traditions, absolutely. And, and there are so many, so we don't even need to name them, but you know it's for you when you read a quote or you hear someone talk about it and you say, oh, that really makes sense to me. Right. Whereas other things, when I'll hear them talking about it, I'll, my bullshit detector, will, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> and, you know, it's different for every person, right? Absolutely. But some consistent practice of that connects us with this higher intelligence, I think, and studying, you know, after the 12 steps, I mean, it says in the 11th step, there are many wonderful lessons to be learned from these wisdom traditions. Absolutely. Branch yourself out and find what helps bring you closer to a higher power to dissolve your fear, dissolve your self-centered worries, <laughs> and dissolve your just, you know, self-deception and because we are after all human. So we, we do engage in those things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One of my biggest experiences in letting go of the outcome and the result was in fact, my journey to connecting to a power greater than myself in that I had a enormous resentment against God growing up my my mom died when i was 11 years old so i carried right. this this enormous resentment against god but i found myself in the unique position many of us find ourselves in when we embark uh, on uh, the 12 steps which is i needed to connect to a power greater than myself the old God wasn't going to work for me because of this giant resentment, but I decided that I was just going to wipe the slate clean entirely. I couldn't buy you talk about the bullshit detector, the folks in the rooms that said, well, I just invented my higher power. And I thought that is about the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my entire <laughs> life. You want me to invent a higher power. That's going to save me from my alcoholism and addiction that if I can, think it up. It ain't big enough for me. So I just wiped the slate clean and started praying to a God that I didn't understand, that I had no concept of. But I started praying every morning and every night and a lot of time in between, too, because I was in a bad way spiritually and emotionally and physically. Mm -hmm. And that God that I didn't understand, that I had no concept of, started changing me in profound ways. 
And that was my first real powerful experience in letting completely letting go of the outcome. No idea what to expect, but I was earnest in my effort. And what I experienced was far beyond anything that I could have imagined on the front end. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. You know, they talk about contempt prior to investigation. Indeed. It's back there pointing fingers at everyone else, but not trying it myself. Right. <laughs> you know, and it is absolutely true that, uh, you know, the, the simplest chair, uh, prayer is help. <laughs> yes. And, you know, quite often people start having things start changing when they when they say that if they if they're willing to act, if they're willing to put themselves in a new place with healthy people, if they're willing to let go of numbing themselves with all kinds of stuff, you know, because how can I kind of feel like there's a channel in us. And, you know, my my heart and my light is in the middle here and it's my God self or higher self. But um, the behavior, the whispered lies, the character flaws, it's like rocks clogging up the channel. And so the the spiritual practices, the energy work, the step practices, you know, the cognitive, it all kind of dissolves the blockages to receiving and giving love. And so it becomes quite a healing journey, you know, getting rid of those blockages. I love the metaphor of getting rid of the blockages. It really reminds me of a lot of what we're doing is adding by subtracting. (laughs) We're getting rid of stuff that doesn't serve us anymore. We're starting to shed this stuff that doesn't serve us anymore and let it go. And, you know, the drop the rock books talk about that a lot, which are great. Mm-hmm. Right. But we're mm-hmm. starting to let a go of those counterproductive attitude, thoughts and behaviors that no longer serve us. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to pick up tools that allow us to simply connect to our higher power and the people around us in love. Right. Right. And that's what dissolves the patterns. It's not okay, I'm going to get rid of this pattern. It's I'm going to use some practices that will bring that power into me to dissolve the pattern. So that's, yeah, that's why step seven is really a prayer. You know, take this away from me because I I can't do it. And so it it really is a, a spiritual, energetic, healing journey. But I like some of the cognitive things too, you know, Mm -hmm. that, I mean, even the affirmations, but uh, the Buddha brain, there's a guy named Rick Hansen. He's written a book about, you know, changing your mind and your thoughts. And, you know, they're having really good results. And EMDR is, I hadn't experienced it as a therapy mode, but apparently it's like the best of talk therapy and energy work. And it's, a very helpful and cognitive. You know? I can personally vouch for that, Gigi. You- That's the kind of therapy that I did in order to move through that trauma that was keeping me stuck in many ways was the MDR. It was transformative for me. And I move and I was moving through the 12 steps with a sponsor and in their EMDR therapy. It was, tra- it's tr- it was absolutely transformational. Um, lucky you. I, I was um, starting to write my book and I was, 
really uh, worried about people thinking that I was neurotic because <laughs> I was going to, you know, be disclosing a lot about myself. Mm. And um, and I, you know, I had my uh, it, one of my parents' voices in my head, you know, Gigi, how can you be so goddamn dumb, you know? And and so I went, I, you know, it was one of those coincidence things. And that's the other thing that happens when you start asking for help just from whatever you think is out there that'll help you, these coincidences, quote unquote, start happening. I was afraid when I was writing the book that, you know, it was too much self-disclosure, people would criticize me and so on. And I actually became a little frozen at one point. And so when I went to this um, woman who'd written a kind of a similar book, she was an energy therapist and she taught me how to do the tapping where I would say, okay, even though I'm afraid that people are going to criticize me and call me dumb and it's going to feel like my dad did. I love and forgive and accept myself completely. So all is well. And that kind of tapping, uh, because actually I did several layers of healing. And one of the points I wanted to make was that um, if you have a spiritual advisor and you're working a program and you have support from healthy people, then, and you have this higher power, whatever it is for you, the pace and depth of the healing is regulated in this perfect way. So my first house cleaning steps, four through nine, I only looked at the alcoholism because that's all I was seeing. My second time through, I learned about my alcoholic home. Mm -hmm. and adult children of alcoholics. So I started going to adult children of alcoholics and learning about that. That was really fun. Uh, <laughs> but those people gave me hope because they were working a program and they were far farther down the road to healing. Mm. A few years later, I uncovered something that I didn't even know had existed in my life and that had accounted for a lot of my shame and uh, lack of boundaries and dysfunction in relationships. And it had to do with sexual touching. And, you know, I went to a new therapist and everything, you know, just to heal with that. And I tell that entire story. Um, and that was a, a real gift that it didn't come out all at once. It, the scary things that were deep down inside of me that I thought were there kind of might've felt were there. I was afraid to go to therapy or to quit drinking because I thought it would be ripping the bandwave yeah. off all at once, come gushing out and it would kill me, you mm. know? So the good news is it comes out at a manageable pace. <laughs> and when we're ready to be able to go there, then we meet people along our journey that give us permission to go there too yeah so true. we hear that they were able to reckon with that trauma right and name it and own it and move through it yes and be able to then show other people that they can too. Right. And I had quite the surprise when my husband, um, this is chapter six, 
<laughs> after 30 years, let's see, he had been sober 30 years. I'd never seen him drink. And his drug of choice was cocaine. Mm. But I met him in the rooms. Mm. And um, we'd been married for about 20 years, you know. Mm. And he said, you know, I think I could have a, a beer with the guys after golf. What do you think about that? And I thought, well, it kind of scares the shit out of me. But um, <laughs> let's, you know, if you feel like you could keep it to two drinks, then if you, you know, that that would work well. So he had, you know, went that way for a while. Then it's a long story. But anyway, I discovered a half empty bottle of vodka. I just freaked and uh, so one thing I've learned is when something goes wrong, I don't tackle the problem directly with the person. Mm. I go to my spiritual advisors. I start working my ass off in this case in Al-Anon. Mm. I got a sponsor. I worked the steps because I knew if I dealt with that situation from being as freaked out as I was, right. I could really make it worse. Right. And I could damage our relationship. Right. So, and I, and I didn't do it perfectly. There are a few times that I pissed him off. <laughs> yeah. But um, ultimately, you know, through me looking at my stuff, it was about my father's drinking. Mm. Here was this man, my husband that I trusted completely. And I was afraid he was going to be abusive. Yeah. Just as my father had been. Yeah. And once I did more of the forgiveness work with my father and my husband showed me that he could have two drinks, no more and no other drugs of any kind and not escalate. We're good to go. That is a really instructive experience because again another opportunity arose when you were ready to address this other piece uh, of codependency right and be able to work through that in a way and instead of trying to run headlong into it right and fix him or right um you ran to your tools yep. and you ran to your spirituality and you ran headlong into the things that had allowed you to move through these other really difficult pieces in your life. And in my mind, that is the true measure of success and recovery is running toward our support and our tools and our spirituality. Yeah. You know, we say we don't live in the problem. We live in the solution. But in this case, the solution doesn't come from intellectual analysis. It comes from acting and working the tools Absolutely. that we know will help us connect with the best decision making and perceptions of wisdom that we can access, which doesn't come from our fear self. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, it's interesting as you were talking through the steps four, five, six, and seven. After I had also identified my own counterproductive patterns after four and then five, the first time I read steps 
six and seven. I read them like Charlie removes all of his character defects all by himself without any help just by trying really hard. (laughs) So I did that for a while, right? Mm -hmm. Like just trying to like mm, remove them, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work that way. And so that's what I love about these tools because we have to go, We there's tools that can help us. Our higher power can help us. We can connect. There's so many different tools. So let's talk about, because there's 50 of them. Let's talk about your favorite tools, your go-to tools, Gigi, that are in 50 mm. Ways to Worry Less Now. When you are feeling anxious what are your go-to tools you know there's a really simple tool that we we learn about in the rooms it's called the golden key Mm. and um it's simply when i catch my mind worrying i turn my mind to uh any thoughts i have that are about a higher power or goodness or a love a love image but then of course my mind goes back to its default of worry, right? Right. So what I do is I just don't punish myself when I notice I'm worrying or afraid or trying to figure that thing out again. <laughs> I just, I just notice it. Oh, there I am again, and I move my thinking over to this positive phrase or um, images of God is what the guy who originated it suggested, but it doesn't have to be that. And then I just keep moving my mind away from worry and toward love, care. And Emmett Fox, who wrote um, the uh, 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 oh, Sermon on the Mount, yes, which apparently when they were writing the big book, many of them were studying it. I don't know the history perfectly. But anyway, it's the same Emmett Fox who wrote that, who wrote The Golden Key. It's a tiny little booklet. But he says, using this, whatever it was you were worrying about will be taken care of. Because instead of focusing on the worrisome issue, you're focusing on your higher power and goodness, and it'll be taken care of. And that, you know, that is such a simple technique, but hard. I mean, because it, it implies that you need to be able to know what you're thinking. No doubt. And that you can remove yourself from being attached to what you're thinking, which brings me to the second one, which is meditation. Mm-hmm. You know, every every technique I suggested. I did a little research because one of the reviewers of the early book said, well, you can't just tell people to use these tools without giving them a little bit of science behind it. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. you, the science on meditation, on mindfulness meditation that's been done at University of Massachusetts um, Medical Center, which is where John Kabat-Zinn uh, worked with his colleagues. I mean, the part of the brain that's responsible for fight, flight, freeze, uh, shrinks in people who've been meditating. Yeah, the the amygdala. Yeah, I right. mean, it, I, I mean, is that that's profound research? Right. So the other thing that everyone says, well, I can't meditate because I can't stop thinking. It isn't about that. It's about noticing the thinking, and then redirecting your mind somewhere else. Absolutely, be- just like they say, trying to pray is praying. Yeah, trying to yeah. meditate is meditating. Yes, yes. And and the reason that you're more 
you get more benefit from it the more often you notice yourself thinking about something else and redirecting your mind back to the focus, whether it's a candle or a phrase or a mantra, is because then you're getting practice at redirecting your mind and of noticing what your mind is thinking about. And it's so empowering to know that I have a choice over what I think about. You know, that's huge. And I had no idea. I had no idea. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, I think what we're doing is we're just getting to the point where we can start naming our feelings, naming uh, how we feel in the moment and being able to observe it. Because in the beginning, I was so disconnected to my thoughts and feelings and emotions. I was so disconnected to my body that I needed to be sober first in order to even have a chance to be able to experience these emotions sober and then go through a process of being able to know what it feels like to be anxious. I didn't even know I was anxious for 20 years. I didn't know it was anxiety. I had no idea. I just, I I didn't, it felt icky and I drank a lot. Like that's what it was. Right. So, so experiencing these uncomfortable and seemingly overwhelming emotions being able to name them. And I love the phrase that says, I'm only responsible for my second thought and my first action. Right? Nice, nice. You know, because my default mode, right? Yeah. But then I can start to progress if I'm practicing that mindfulness and that meditation and being able to as you so well put, practice, and there's a reason they call it practice. Yeah. <laughs> a meditation practice. Yeah. Because we, we ain't good at, at it. it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I'm redirecting my thoughts and I'm redirecting exactly. my mind and I'm able to quiet down what some might refer to as the itty bitty shitty committee. Uh-huh. And, That's right. <laughs> and I'm able to then connect to that true source of power um, a la Emmett Fox and be able to, okay, yeah. And, and not have any judgment around it and not, and not judge myself for it, which I think as you brought Mm -hmm. up is such an important part of all of this is know that we're going to fail a million times and that's okay. Mm -hmm. We just keep, we keep working. Yeah. And it, it's an even failure. It's just an experience of awareness, you know. Right. Um, I, I, when you mentioned sitting with your feelings, that brought to mind that name that I gave before, Pema Children. It's P-E-M-A-C-H-O-D-R. I think it's U-N. Mm-hmm. She has some CDs. She's wickedly funny and honest. And she's a Buddhist. And she, when I had the frozen shoulders and I couldn't stand it, somehow someone suggested this and I read and it was like sitting with the discomfort, which as addicts, we never learned how to do. Right. But just to be with ourselves while we're being uncomfortable in a loving presence Mm. instead of, oh my God, I got to fix it. You know, because the anxiety makes the chronic pain worse. Yeah. And that concept of self-compassion, which is uh, also came to me during that time, the, the self-care, 
and changing the critical parent to the loving, nurturing parent. And I, and my one therapist did some of that reparenting inner child work, which was very helpful to me. And, you know, to talk, it, just taking good care of myself. So, oh yeah, I'm freaked out. Well, have I eaten enough? Have I slept enough? You know, that and the, uh, the That's hungry, my go-to. And I, lo I love it. I yeah. love hungry, angry, angry, lonely. I love it. Tired. And quite often that's why I have shitty thinking. I just right. haven't gotten, you know, or sick, you know. Right. And then um, there's a gal named Kristen Neff and it's N-E-F-F. -F, and she's got a great book called Self-Compassion. And it's learning how to talk to yourself like you would talk to your little sister or brother if they were hurting. That is such a beautiful, helpful thing. And I really like guided meditations because I don't think sometimes I can't quiet my mind mm -hmm. or I, you know, I just want something different. I know my thinking, I know I'm having trouble being kind to myself. So I'll pick a theme in that insight timer app or another app that does meditations, but I like the guided ones and her one on self-compassion. If you, uh, it's, it's just a game changer for me. Um, Kristen Neff. I love the self-compassion piece because it was also transformative for me. That was part of my own therapy work was to re-experience this, these really traumatic events and, you know, be able to be there for myself through those events mm -hmm. when I wasn't able to be there for myself during those events. And, you know, it was so profoundly traumatic for all of us mm -hmm. that we were all just in like base survival mode and we couldn't even be there for ourselves, let alone really each other. Right. And so we're the being able to re-experience the that trauma and the advice of my therapist was to tell myself what I would tell my own son. Exactly. If my own son was experiencing those emotions and it was simply transformative. And I use that today as a tool to be able to have that self-compassion for myself. Exactly. Yeah, it's a wonderful tool. There are so many things. I think one of the things I recommend is some kind of deep spiritual study, if it appeals to you. I mean, after doing the 12 steps, sometimes we get stale or we start pulling mm -hmm. away because we think it's the same old stuff. Right. But if we take the 11th step and explode it, and, you know, look for, for me, it's been a course in miracles. Yeah. And I am in two study groups and I've studied it since the nineties. And it, you know, it basically helps me uh, dissolve the ego and, and uh, get God's voice going in my head more than a fear voice and toward other people. But it, it, and, and I think for a lot of people in recovery, um, I found a lot of help at Unity Church. It's not Unitarian, it's Unity Church, and it's all over the country. Very 12-step uh, friendly, and never a word about a punishing fire and brimstone, guilt, God. Um, I went to a fabulous, at first I couldn't conceive of a, neg of a 
uh, male higher power because I had had some harm mm. at the hands of mm -hmm. males. And I went to a um, little one day workshop there at the Unity in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I lived. And it was on the female divine. And it totally recast it for me as a nurturing, loving, yeah. you know, and, and even in that book, The Shack, which I recommend highly, uh, The Shack, the, the higher power persona is a big woman. Yeah. African-American woman and all love, all in, you know, so the Unity Church had a lot of teachings that helped me. Um, there was a guy there. Well, Marianne Williamson was there for a while in the Detroit one, but before she was there, Jack Boland, who was sober himself, and he did a lot of things with what's called mastermind, which is a common term used in many uh, situations, but I explain how to do it here. It's a group, and you go through these eight steps, and basically you visualize for each other meeting your goals usually in recovery, they're spiritual goals or right. healing goals or right. taking on a challenge kind of a goal, but it's a really powerful, I, I was in a group when I was writing my book. And when my husband started drinking, I got another group going. <laughs> that's and that's really that connection, powerful. right? Yeah. To others yeah. that are walking the same path, but it might be a little bit farther down that path. Much of this Gigi, is very much like building muscle. The, the more we train on this, our minds and our spirit, the better we're gonna be at it, right? And the more we're gonna be able to instinctively reach for some of this stuff in muscle memory. And we're also retraining our brains to not go for the easy out, the, 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 the immediate fix, that eject button. We're starting to be able to want that long-term beneficial outcome. But it's, again, it's that building that muscle and that muscle memory. Yeah. Yeah. And the people around us who, I mean, one of, I think that, um, a belief in a spiritual thing, it, it, it's there for me. But, you know, for most of us, it's pretty darn abstract. Yeah. But when I think about finding security and what my source of security is, and I often think the worst possible thing that could happen in my life, let's pretend that happened. Where would I have my security? Mm -hmm. It's my posse of women who are in my program with yeah. me. They would be there for me. And that right in the center of my gut gives me a sense of security because they would be channeling my higher power when I wouldn't be able to possibly because right. of grief or whatever. Right. And that to me is really powerful to get to a place. And I've been fortunate to get to that place. Sometimes I forget. And I think that I need all these extra things in a bigger house and on and on and on. But to be at a place where I know deep, deep down in the center of my soul that no matter what, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. No matter what, because I have the ability to connect to the God of my understanding and 
the people around me. I have that ability. And as long as I can connect to the God of my understanding and the people around me, I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And boy, does that powerfully dissolve a lot of fears, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Before we close, Gigi. Yeah. I'm a recovery routine nerd. So uh- I like to learn about your own recovery routine, your daily recovery routine. So tell us what your daily recovery routine is like. Well, these days I'm reading A Course in Miracles in the morning. Which I love. It's a book I have. I have not gotten through it. I started it and then, you know, got intimidated. So I, you know, so I intend to get through it for sure. It's best to do it in a group. And there are lots of places to find groups that study it. So anyway, um, I pray and I meditate. I have coffee with my husband. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to a lot of Zoom meetings, and I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And then I have conversations with my sponsees. This is more of what I do during the week rather than one day. Yeah, and that's perfect. Okay. Um, and but you so talk I, about your daily meditation, so that's great. And I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. And I, you know, I pray and like before I do anything like this, I get on my knees and ask to be of service and, you know, that that it be useful to somebody listening. Mm. Anytime I do anything that feels a little scary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the phrases I say to myself very often throughout the day, especially with boxes everywhere and a sense of chaos. Right. Is. um. God help me to see this differently. Mm. So instead of seeing chaos, you know, help me to see what's beautiful. Mm. Help, you know, and and it shifts. Yeah. Um, service work, you know, there's a lot of service work. If before COVID, it was doing fun things with my female friends. Obviously, I have a great time with my husband. He's he's the perfect person for me. <laughs> so my higher power did that. Um, Tell me what was perhaps the most helpful thing you heard in your recovery journey that really had a profound impact on your recovery? You can be happy again. I mean, you know, those people were happy. That's yeah. why I walked into that first meeting and I could feel it. Yeah. And and I saw, damn, you know, I don't have to be miserable anymore. If I do what these people are doing, you know, I have a shot at being happy and maybe even happily married. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you, that's such a great way to frame it, Gigi, because somebody said something extremely similar to me very early on. It was maybe like my second meeting after coming back into the rooms after not being in them for a very, very, very long time. And they said to me, you don't ever have to feel like this ever again, if you don't want to. And that is fabulous. We're not stuck. We're not alone. You know, and I believed, I really believed that I was going to, I was, you know, that there was a very real possibility that I was just going to feel like that for the rest of my life. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Gigi, I can't thank you enough for taking time here discussing 50 ways to worry less. Now we're going to have a link to the book in the show notes. We are going to have a a number of the references in the show notes, although they're in the book. 
these tools can really make a powerful impact on your overall and daily well-being. Thanks so much for saying that, Charles. Just for the listeners, um, there's quite a big discount on the hard copy book that you can get on my website, which is gglanger.com. And it's free shipping and I do a signed personal copy. And you did that for me, which I I love. So thank you for that. And anytime I can redirect the business away from Amazon, I'm a big I'm a big fan of that. So so we will have gglanger.com in the show notes. So if you're listening right now, Perfect. check the show notes. It will be right there. You get a discount. You get free shipping and a personalized message. Amazon can't do that. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Charles. This was just delightful. And I'm, I'm going to go unpack some more boxes. <laughs> that sounds... That sounds like a very productive thing to do. Thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land for listening. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.